Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast, coming to you upon the occasion of the 77th United Nations General Assembly meeting. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Last week, we heard some of what US President Joe Biden had to say in his speech to the members of the UN in New York. But of course, being in the time zone on this side of the world, we're playing catch up with the speech made by China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi, which happened over the weekend. It was a much anticipated speech, especially since Vladimir Putin had only days before announced a mobilization of some 300,000 reservists for his war on Ukraine, as well as making it very clear he was not bluffing when he threatened Europe with the 6,000 nuclear weapons estimated to be at his disposal. Now, this UN General Assembly meeting comes just one week after Xi Jinping travelled to Uzbekistan for the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation meeting, in which Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin sat down for a face-to-face meeting. This is what Xi was quoted as saying to Putin in that meeting. China is willing to make efforts with Russia to assume the role of great powers and play a guiding role to inject stability and positive energy into a world rocked by social turmoil. So with China willing to play the role of great power, there was some considerable expectation for what would be said by Wang Yi. Here's what we heard from Wang Yi via the official UN translation audio feed 60 seconds into his speech. How should we respond to the call of our times and the ride, the trend of history, to build a community with a shared future for mankind? China's answer is firm and clear. First, we must uphold peace and oppose war. President Xi Jinping notes that peace, like air and sunshine, is hardly noticed when we are benefited from it, but none of us can live without it. Peace is crucial for our future, and it underpins common security of all countries. Turbulence and war can only open Pandora's box, and he who instigates a proxy war can easily get himself burned. Pursuing one's own absolute security can only undermine global strategic stability. We must address differences by peaceful means and resolve disputes through dialogue and consultation. It was an interesting reference to sunshine, given southwest China, like Europe, like the US and Central and Southern Asia, have just endured a deadly heat wave. East Africa is facing a famine, and Pakistan is dealing with the biggest humanitarian crisis in its history. But what else was he going to say about a peaceful solution for the war on Ukraine? China is the top contributor of peacekeeping personnel among the P5, and it is the second largest founding contributor to both the UN and its peacekeeping operations. China is the only country in the world that pledges to keep to a path of peaceful development in its constitution. It is the only one 
among the five nuclear weapon states that is committed to no first use of nuclear weapons. It has thus made important contribution to global strategic stability. After making some reference to China's contribution to UN peacekeeping efforts, and one very specific reference to China being the only nuclear-armed country committed to no first use of nuclear weapons, the issue of Ukraine was raised briefly, albeit some 13 minutes into his speech. China has endeavoured to help settle hotspot issues in a constructive way. Our approach is to promote peace through talks, which is fair and pragmatic. And aims to address both the symptoms and root causes of hotspot issues. China supports all efforts conducive to the peaceful resolution of the Ukraine crisis. The pressing priority is to facilitate talks for peace. The fundamental solution is to address the legitimate security concerns of all parties and build a balanced, effective, and sustainable security architecture. We call on all parties concerned to keep the crisis from spilling over. And protect the legitimate rights and interests of developing countries. And then he moved on to talk about Palestine being at the heart of the Middle East issue. What do we make of this? We figured it was time to call up a previous guest to this episode, someone who has literally written the book on China and its role at the United Nations. Professor Rosemary Foot is a senior research fellow in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford University. She's been publishing articles and books analyzing China's domestic politics and its international relations for roughly the last 40 years. But most recently, she authored a book titled "China, the UN, and Human Protection: Beliefs, Power, Image." If you were listening to this podcast in July last year, you would have heard my colleague Chad Bray interviewing Professor Foot upon the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Resuming its seat at the United Nations, but with so much happening in and around the UN General Assembly this week, I thought it would be beneficial to get her perspective on what's happened. Professor Foot, thank you very much for your time. It's delightful to be here. Thank you for asking me. Can I start with the most recent and most public of China's appearances and statements at the United Nations? Foreign Minister Wang Yi had his turn at the lectern two days ago at the UN General Assembly. What did you make of his speech, and did anything stand out for you? A couple of things、um, stood out for me.、Uh, one was obviously the length of time that he spent、uh, talking about Taiwan. Perhaps not、uh, surprising, but nevertheless, another indication that this is China's core interest and core concern.、Um, I also thought that his. Statements on Ukraine、um, were really took us nowhere further, essentially, in terms of China's position on the war. Repeating you know, the, the need to, for sort of dialogue and, and peaceful resolution and so on,、um, but also making reference to the idea that security of all parties needed to be considered. So again, a fairly mild intervention on on the matter that actually was predominant in in many of the UN speeches that、uh, were given before the General Assembly、uh, last week.、Um, so、uh, not much advancement in its position. And interestingly, we had you know Ukraine President Zelensky, the only national leader allowed to. Zoom call in to the General Assembly. The SNP has also published a video where President Zelensky personally calls for China to speak to Russia about its war upon the people of Ukraine. 
You've detailed in your book Xi Jinping's desire to have China play a larger role in global governance. Surely when a nuclear-armed power like Russia has invaded a sovereign nation and is openly threatening to use nuclear weapons, this is the moment for China to show its leadership. Yes, you'd think so. But, um, I mean, there are a number of um, ways in which China is essentially trying to control um, the negative fallout from the rather passive position that it's taken on this war. Um, I mean, obviously, this week has been particularly difficult for it, I think, with Russia's mobilisation and the holding of the referenda and, and obviously the inability for Russia to prevail militarily. I'm, I'm sure that China thought this would be a quick intervention that would be soon um, completed. But instead, we've had lots of negative spillovers. And now this uh, use of nuclear threats and, and, and so on. So it's a very difficult environment in, for, for China to operate. And, and I think the way that it's tried to deal with it really is to emphasise that it wants a negotiated solution. Um, it abstains on a number of resolutions rather than actually voting with Russia. So, for example, Zelensky's virtual appearance, the Russians tried to stop that and said that he had to be there in person. The Chinese abstained on that. Um, they were, I think, everyone else on the Security Council voted for his presence. So, again, they, they did somewhat differentiate themselves but they didn't go so far as to vote with, with Russia. Um, and it hasn't breached Western sanctions um, that have been levied against Russia. It, it does um, repeat uh, the thing that we associate with China so firmly, the idea of support for state sovereignty, territorial integrity. It still says that that's its basic position, non-interference in internal affairs and all of that. So how does it compensate for that very strong uh, regular statement of support for traditional state sovereignty. How does it try to mitigate, if you like, the stance that it's taken, uh, which appears to actually be in direct contrast to the things that we associate with China, in particular, in particular on state sovereignty and territorial integrity. So what it does, I think, is it, it's coupling those statements in support of sovereignty and territorial integrity uh, with ideas of comprehensive common security, cooperative security. Sometimes it uses the term indivisible security. What it's trying to do really is to promote the idea that an individual political actor cannot seek security at the expense of others. And so what it's basically saying, sometimes directly, sometimes more indirectly, that NATO enlargement is the root cause of this conflict. So, I mean, I think Wang Yi had a, a, a sentence, something like, we need to address the legitimate security concerns of all parties. So, so that's what they're trying to do is to sort of broaden the understanding that this is not just about Russian intervention in Ukraine. This is part of a much larger uh, security framework and, and security perspectives. And I think the other thing that China is trying to do to uh, repair its its image or at least mitigate the stance, the rather passive stance it's taken, is to emphasise the other um, ways in which China contributes to a peaceful global order through the UN. So, you know, 
via peacekeeping, via its budgetary contributions, with the setting up of peace and security trust fund, with its support for South-South forums, um, the sustainable development goals. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis you've probably noticed in Chinese statements on this new initiative of the Global Development Initiative. And again, trying to link its ideas about how you contribute to sustainable development, trying to link those to the sustainable development goals agenda of the UN. It's talking about food security, because again, one of the consequences of the war in Ukraine is a great deal of insecurity around food supplies and, and the costs of food and energy and so on, and that are particularly hitting those states that um, sometimes align align themselves quite closely with China. So it's trying to remind countries, if you like, of the other contributions that it makes um, to uh, the UN system and to UN member states. Professor, if I could interrupt you there, it's interesting you talk about the current global food crisis. I watched you know, a selection of different speeches from different member nations of the UN. So many of them all spoke about climate change as the number one existential mm. crisis they're facing. I didn't see anything about climate change in Wang Yi's speech. Did you find that surprising? Uh, that's absolutely true, actually. Um, I'm glad you pointed that out because it, one would have expected that. Um, and, and and particularly China thinks it has a good story to, to tell on that. You know, it's, it's made this commitment to um, 2060 as um, carbon neutrality and so on. And it sees itself as a supporter of uh, the climate change agreements it mentions, obviously, its support for the Paris Agreement and the like. So, and also that it's supportive of uh, the idea of transfer of resources to developing countries so that they can again deal with the effects of climate change as uh, and when they face them in the immediate period, let alone the longer. Um, uh, transfer to a, a green economy and so on. So, yes, it is surprising that he he didn't uh, focus on that. He he already spoke, of course, over the length, but then that's that's not unusual. Um, but I think he wanted to get in, particularly the. Th- thoughts on security and the thoughts on the sort of the development agenda um, as the sort of two main initiatives that China was putting forward. And as I said earlier, the Taiwan question as well. Again, I can see this intersection of of interests or indeed conflicts because, of course, China withdrew its support or its work with the US about climate change as a result mm. of US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, this seems to be an order of priority for for Beijing, that the Taiwan question is much more important than something that affects the rest of the world, which is climate change. I don't think you would think about it in terms of affecting the rest of the world, if, if you see what I mean. I, I, I think it's thinking about it in terms of the relationship with the United States. It's sending a very key signal to the United States that if you're going to mess with us on the Taiwan issue, then forget cooperation across the board. And of course, the 
the Biden administration in particular, and with John Kerry and so on leading the charge here, has put so much emphasis on this being one area of cooperation um, with China that's important to both sides and should advance and so on. So I think they're sending a signal saying, you know, these things are linked. And, and if you mess with the Taiwan issue, then expect um, a withdrawal of um, support and cooperation on all other areas of, of, of policy, basically. Even though we, we know, obviously, that climate change is something that's affecting China itself, as, as well as obviously the rest of the world. And we know that this is a concern for China. And yet it seems willing to, to send that signal at this stage in the US-China relationship. Professor, you've written extensively about how Beijing is concerned about its image, both domestically and politically. We spoke last week with a Central Asia specialist talking about how Kazakhstan had turned towards China as a result of seeing Russia's aggression towards Ukraine and, of course, because of its 5,000-kilometre-long border uh, with, with Russia. How do you see... Beijing's reputation being affected in Europe, in Central Asia, by its, if not support, its refusal to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine? I think it has been affected and well beyond the West. I mean, obviously, this rather passive um, stance that it has adopted is of concern to Central Asian states. And I think you saw some indication, actually, that of China's realisation that when it was uh, at the meetings of the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, it had to be attentive to their concerns. It understood that these countries are disturbed, uh, anxious about uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine and see themselves as former members of the Soviet empire, uh, potentially as, as future victims. So I think they made it clear to China and that China in its statements indicated that it was aware of their sensitivities. Doesn't mean to say that it gave up in entirely on supporting Putin. That's quite clear. I mean, Xi Jinping refers to Putin as his old friend. Um, you know, there is a bilateral one-to-one, which is, is full of sort of supportive, mutually supportive statements, more so on the Russian side, I might add, where he talks about Chinese core interests um, and uh, references Taiwan, and, and China doesn't uh, reference uh, uh, Russian core interests specifically. But um, so it's trying to sort of, as others have put it, it's trying to sort of straddle continuing this support for Russia because of their similarities in worldviews, because they um, see themselves in many ways as as supporters in in the international environment, in international institutions. They line up together on on a number of different issues, but at the same time, realizing China realizing that Central Asia is extremely disturbed by this. And I think this is true too in in Central and Eastern Europe Um, for the same kinds of reasons. Former members of the Soviet empire are extraordinarily concerned, not all of them, of course, You might make a separation of of Hungary, for example, but a number of them are extremely concerned 
about the war in Ukraine and expect China to do more than it is doing uh, at the moment. And so China has had over the years this this so-called what was originally the 16 plus one agreement with the Central and Eastern European uh, countries. It became 17 plus one. It's now down to about 14 plus one because the Baltic states uh, basically said they don't really want um, to be a part of this framework. And Poland and the Czech Republic have made it clear that uh, essentially China has lost influence within this particular grouping because of its passive stance on Ukraine and refusal to condemn in an outright way, refusal to speak to Zelensky. I mean, mean, there was a meeting between Wang Yi and the Ukrainian foreign minister. That was the first time since the onset of the war. And there has been no um, contact, as I understand it. I may be wrong, but as I understand it, no contact between Xi Jinping and uh, Zelensky. So, you know, that kind of standing back from the conflict and, and hoping if, in a way that dialogue and cooperation will lead to resolution is not really enough for these countries that were formerly part of the Soviet empire. Well, can I turn now and ask you about the UN Human Rights Office report into alleged human rights abuses in Xinjiang? This was vehemently rejected uh, many levels by Beijing when it came out. But were you surprised that Wang Yi made no mention of Xinjiang in his speech over the weekend? Uh, no, not not surprised at all. I mean, he obviously talks about China as being uh, a supporter of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And he talks about the politicization of human rights, as as I recall. In that indirect way, he makes reference to uh, what's actually, you know, of primary concern to China, which is the production of this report and what will happen as a result of the production of this report. Will it result in a condemnatory resolution at the Human Rights Council or some sort of statement or, 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 or... uh, you know what kind of support will those that put forward the resolution get within a body like the Human Rights Council for a condemnatory resolution? That is obviously the main concern of China. It's extremely disturbed, I think, at the moment. You wrote that China has learned much about how to operate within the UN environment, and you know mm. you've also laid out how China is working at all levels of the United Nations on committees, on different boards to shape governance. This UN Human Rights Office report, it's been dismissed by Beijing, but do you think that it will change the approach for Beijing in the UN? Is this a major test for China's relationship with the UN? Um, let me let me answer that in two parts. First of all, I think within the Human Rights Council and as a result of the production of the report by the Office of the High Commissioner, uh, it will do what it often does. It will try to delegitimise the evidence that's been put forward in the report. It will describe the report as basically a Western plot to destroy the territorial unity of China. It will and has already tried to discredit the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and by saying that the office is not representative in terms of those that work in that office. It's not representative of all regions of the world and so on. It's made the claim that Michelle Bachelet herself didn't support the report and that 
uh, that was the reason why she left it to the last, you know, 10, 15 minutes of her period as High Commissioner before she released it and so on. And of course, the other thing is to try to build a coalition of support. They've already started that among UN members to issue, you know, uh, condemnatory statements of their own with respect to the report and to give their support to to China. So that's very much, uh, very, very often the, the, the method that it will uh, use within bodies like the Human Rights Council, try to delegitimize those that offer a point of view that it does not like uh, or support. And on the other hand, try to build a coalition of support to show that other UN members are in agreement with it. And I think in some ways, what I would say about what China can do elsewhere in the UN system depends very much on the institutional design of, of particular UN bodies. So, for example, if we think about the Security Council, you know, there are five permanent members with veto power. If you want to make a procedural statement, you have to get nine countries, in nine out of the uh, the 15, in support of a, of a procedural statement. So it's actually quite difficult to actually get your own way except through use of the veto if within a, a Security Council body. Now, we've seen that China is more willing to use the veto. There's been a, um, about 16 used since Xi Jinping came to power and just a handful prior to uh, Xi Jinping coming to power. So we see it willing to do that, but it doesn't often like doing that on its own. It would, it, it, in most, in almost all those cases, it's done it alongside Russia. In a body like the Human Rights Council, where there are 47 member states, there's good Asian and African representation. Uh, China has found it relatively straightforward to get support for resolutions that it's put forward uh, uh, in that body um, to get other member states to uh, support it when it's come under uh, criticism for human rights abuses, either in Xinjiang or elsewhere in, inside China. Within the UN Security Council, when you're debating international peace and security issues, and of course, China has a particular perspective on the sorts of agenda items that should be prioritised within the Security Council. Because of the design of the Security Council, it's more difficult to get your way, except by you know use of the veto. And the problem with too frequent use of the veto is that the Security Council begins to look totally ineffective. And if you've come to the point where China has, where it states that it wishes international order to be based on the UN Charter, um, on UN norms and principles, then if you're going to make the central body within the United Nations system ineffective, then you, in a sense, you've damaged your own position that the UN is the core multilateral interstate organization in world politics. So that itself imposes a degree of constraint on, on what China can do within that body. Looking at what we've seen from this 77th United Nations General Assembly, there seems to be a fundamental question of legitimacy for the UN right now. Can it do anything uh, about this 
ruinous war that is having effects worldwide through, you know, food supply crisis, etc. Is that what you get from this, that this moment, there was the UN Security Council, there was the General Assembly meeting, they are faced with a, a crisis, you know, civilians are dying, but they seem mm. to be able to do nothing. It's true. It's a it's a very, very difficult moment for the United Nations. Uh, of course, it's reminiscent of the Cold War um, and the UN didn't collapse in the Cold War, um, but it was obviously much less active, except on certain things like decolonization and, and arms control and so on. But yes, it's a very sad moment, I think, for the United Nations and certainly uh, Secretary General Guterres and members of the Secretariat are very, very concerned about not able to do anything about the Ukraine war, except obviously the things that he has been able to negotiate, the, you know, the the, the ships leaving the ports in, in Ukraine and carrying foodstuffs and so on. So little things around the edges he can do. But when you've got a permanent member of the Security Council involved in war with veto power, obviously, you know, it's extraordinarily difficult. One thing that is interesting is that it might be revitalizing discussion about UN reform. Uh, because of the failure to act, there again is a, a more active discussion about ways of constraining the use of the veto. We've already seen that this year in the sense that the General Assembly managed to pass a resolution. I mean, they're not binding, you know, they're, they're aspirational in some respects, but a resolution requiring any of the P5 members that uses the veto to come before the world body and explain why they've done that. So there is a sort of a degree of accountability. Um, I mean, it doesn't lead necessarily to the outcomes that we want to see, but it is a degree of accountability. And again, this last couple of weeks, um, there's been a, a renewed interest in ideas about how we can restrict the veto and also how we can expand representation on the UN Security Council to other parts of the world. So that's, again, that's a sort of a long-term issue and it's a difficult one to make progress on because of the vested interests of the P5, really. But I notice that the United States has put itself more prominently in favour of, of UN reform this time. And China itself says it will support UN reform. We'll see what kinds of things uh, actually come out of that. But yes, it's a very, very um, disturbing time for the United Nations, not only the Ukraine war, but Guterres is extraordinarily worried about climate change. That's clearly top of his agenda uh, alongside the Ukraine war. And also the other thing is obviously that the sustainable development goals look like they're sort of somewhat out of reach. Of course, in some ways, that's why China has a degree of protection and support within the UN, because they contribute to uh, the sustainable development goals through their own advancements in reductions in absolute poverty, but also because of the economic resources that they've made available to different parts of the UN system. And I think that's why Guterres himself has been rather careful and backward, essentially, in um, hardly ever makes reference to the uh, developments in Xinjiang and the and the High Commission report and so on. 
Professor, you've documented China's increase in funding for UN peacekeeping, indeed for the UN itself. We've seen Mm. China contributing to security staff for the Solomon Islands most recently. Could you see a situation in the future where a ceasefire a ceasefire was agreed to in Ukraine. Would China contribute peacekeeping troops to Ukraine? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Not one I've thought about before. Um, I mean, obviously, to, if we could get to the point of a ceasefire and a UN peacekeeping operation, um, I would be extraordinarily pleased, and and, and as would all of us. Um, That, I think, is a long way off. Um, Would China contribute to that? I'm not sure it would, actually. I still see it as quite a cautious actor. Um, It is the 10th largest contributor overall to, 10th or 11th, round about that, to UN peacekeeping troops. I mean, it may be because of its obviously relation its obvious close relationship with Russia and the difficulties that it has the difficult place that it's put itself in with respect to the Ukraine war at least as many countries outside of China see it i think it would be reluctant actually to be part of that um i mean if it seems to be reluctant at this point to put sufficient pressure on Russia um, to get it to the negotiating table. So the rather more UN, you know, the, the rather more sort of neutral UN-backed position of being part of a peacekeeping operation might be of some appeal to it, but I still think it would err on the side of caution and leave it to others. Professor, can I just finish with a like a contemporary kind of context? You know, you wrote your book in 2018 when the then US President Donald Trump was cutting funding to the UN, withdrawing from the Human Rights Commission as well as UNESCO. We're seeing now under Biden a real push to try and create alliances, also re-engage with the UN. Well, how do you think China has changed its ideas on governance and institutional initiatives, particularly with Africa, but also its outreach to nations in Eastern Europe the South Pacific and Melanesia. How have you seen that change over the last four years? I think you're right in, um, it, the, the book was written in 2018, but but came out in 2020, by the way. But um, it, it's, uh, so it actually ends really with the, uh, the Trump administration um, losing power and Biden coming in with a commitment, a stated commitment to multilateralism and, as you rightly say, back into the UN, immediately applying to rejoin the Human Rights Council and um, and other UN bodies and, and, and stating, very interestingly, I thought, Biden has stated on a number of occasions not only a desire to act like a multilateralist but also to reflect in in bodies like the Human Rights Council on its own domestic failings. So it's very surprising to see Anthony Blinken actually say at one of the early meetings of the Human Rights Council that systemic racism was a problem in the United States and they knew that they had to address that. So, you know, it's chalk and cheese with respect to Trump and, and Biden in many respects in terms of the way in which it presents itself 
um, in the international setting. Of course, there are always, you know, damaging aspects to American policy, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and so on, the, in the incoherent and chaotic way in which that was done and, and the consequences for Afghan people and so on. So there are, you know, there are continuing difficulties in aspects of American foreign policy. But with respect to the UN, it's been quite interesting that there has been um, a, a desire to show that it is a more active player within that body. One of the things that was striking about the long blinking statement on US-China relations was he, in that statement, tried to confront the Chinese argument that we were had been living in a Western-dominated order and that we needed to change that. We needed to make it global and inclusive and so on. So that's been the Chinese argument. Blinken, in that, made the argument that this is not a Western-dominated order. This is an international order that is within the UN system, has required compromises and, and changes on the part of all member states, even the most powerful among them. And he talked about the UN Charter and things like that. Whether or not you believe that that's the way the United States operates in the world, it was very unusual for a Secretary of State uh, in the United States to make a statement of that kind, you know, of strong support for the UN Charter and for an international order based on laws and norms that are reflected within the UN system and so on. So I think it's much more difficult in some ways for China to kind of fill vacuums that Trump provided it with. But at the same time, it's determined, if you like, to carry on in that vein. So it's promoting of various initiatives um, has, has continued in the, in the post-Trump era, in the Biden era. And in particular, in the UN setting at the moment, it keeps um, referencing the Global Development Initiative in particular and talking about the group of friends that have has been built up around that, um, again, getting Guterres to um, endorse the idea of China's Global Development Initiative, linking that with the SDGs, um, putting forward um, uh, the idea of a global security initiative that's been actually, there's been less, far less support for that in the UN setting, but nevertheless, in these other parts of the world where China has become an important security actor, that idea of the Global Security Initiative and the ideas that underpin that um, are being reflected. So I, I don't see much change in terms of Chinese determination to reflect on the current international order and the ways in which it can change it in ways that suit its preferences uh, rather more than has been the case in the past. Can I say once again, uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Professor Rosemary Foote, thank you very much. Thank you and goodbye. That's all for this special edition of China Geopolitics. Coming up this Friday, we'll be bringing you analysis of another interesting geopolitical contest. This one is for who gets to set the rules for the internet itself. The election is down to two candidates. One is American, backed by US tech companies. The other is Russian, backed by China, who shares the view that the internet should be a multilateral system, allowing nation states to control access not the current multi-stakeholder approach that's been in place since the 1980s. 
We are indeed living in interesting times. Thanks for listening, and don't forget, you'll get the latest news and analysis at scp.com. You can always follow our newsroom on Twitter at SCP News. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.